Thanks for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organisations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges, joined by relevant experts and real-life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. Hi, everybody. Just a quick message to say, if you're interested in working with me on the topic of change, I've just agreed dates Um, kicking off the 30th of September 2021 for our next cohort of change superheroes. It's a really small select group we tend to work with. We have three um, three modules, different aspects of change, and you get free 360 feedback and say, I run it personally. And I really, really love running this um, particular training session. It tends to be HR, OD, and occasionally business professionals who are involved in change. And it's really, really practical. So if you're looking for some self-development uh, on the topic of change, then why not take a look at our website and do get in touch if you'd like to know more about that. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. And this week we're going to focus in on the topic of reward uh, in response, actually, to some of the listeners' requests of topics that you'd like to know more about. So this is not something that I feel expert in. So instead, I thought it would be helpful to reach out to an expert in this area. So this week, I'm going to be talking to Ramiz Kaleem of 3R Strategy. Welcome, Ramiz. Hi, Lucinda. Thanks a lot for inviting me here. Yeah, thank you for joining. Do you want to just explain a little bit about your background and then we'll get into the topics that we've paid transparency and PRP and all those things? Yeah, sure. So my, my background is reward. I've been in reward for 20 years now. I was initially in consulting. I was at Willest House Watson a long time ago. Then I moved in-house. And around five years ago, I decided to take a slightly different approach to reward, and I set up 3R strategy. Brilliant. And, and we okay. now work with, yeah, um, work with us. So could you go in and go to consultant, consultancy on reward strategy? Is that what you do? Yes. Yeah, it's on pay and rewards, anything from equal pay to um, pay for performance or pay transparency. So that's, that's, I mean, in fact, let's start with that topic, because these are the sort of topics that have come up in our HR Uprising LinkedIn group. And often people are asking about benchmarking or how do you in, encourage pay transparency? What do we actually mean when we're talking about pay transparency? Yeah, so I, I think pay transparency is a really misunderstood term, um, because when we talk about pay transparency, and particularly in the media, I think it's often discussed in these binary terms. So either you uh, are really secretive or you talk about everything and publish everyone's salaries. And that's really not what paid transparency is about. And any sort of transparency is around giving people context. So it's giving them more information, being clear about how and why paid decisions are made and, and really communicating this to all employees. When you say how am I, so if you're having pay rises, is that what you're saying? Or is it about sort of bench levels of, of pay? 
So it's um, so I like to think of pay transparency as having three different sections. So what do we pay employees? Why do we manage pay the way we do? And how do we make pay decisions? And so those are the three different areas of pay transparency. And I like to think of it in terms of a five step scale. So your first step is where all organizations start off. So what do we pay our employees? So employees know what they get paid on a monthly basis, but uh, are they aware of all the benefits available for them? Uh, to them, are they aware of the value of those benefits? For example, through a total reward statement, and so that's that's just where all the organizations start off. And then we move on to step two, which is thinking about why do we manage pay the way we do? So, what are our reward principles? You know, what is the purpose of pay when we recruit someone into the organization? What do we think about when we decide their salary? What leads to pay progression? So why does pay progress? Is it down to performance, development of skills, contribution, all those things? So that's all the why. And then step three, we start to think about communicating this to employees. So employees are aware of, you know, why was their pay set at a particular level? And why will their pay progress? So we are able to drive those behaviors from, from our people. And then the next two is, so step four is around how do we manage pay? And this is where organizations may have an approach to job evaluation, they benchmark their roles, they have pay structures. So it's really having a clear process and a consistent process in how we manage people. So it doesn't mean everyone's treated the same way, but we have the same process and, uh, and consistency in the process. And then finally, um, the step five is where employees know how pay is managed. So if there's a career framework, they can see how their role fits into the overall organization. What are the different career pathways available to them? how their pay will progress as they progress in their careers, what are the different competencies or skills required for them as they develop, so that all becomes clear to employees. And I think only once we move through all of these steps, then we can start to think about, you know, do we go into even more transparency and publish those salaries? But often we start to go straight into, okay, pay transparency, can we publish salaries? And if we just do that without skipping through all the fairness and the, and the equity and uh, and the transparency piece, then inevitably it's going to lead to a situation where employees will look at what's going on and realize this is not fair and equitable and lead to people being demoralized. So actually transparency and equity are not the same thing. And you would recommend going through that process to make sure that, I guess, um, that, that, that it is fair, it's being fair and, and consistent, uh, consistently applied. Yes. And because, you know, I, I went through those four, five steps, but that doesn't mean uh, that everyone is starting at one, for example. Some organizations will have a lot of these processes in place, but the question is, are they working well? Are they fair? Are they equitable? And so before we start to communicate all of this, we need to be clear about um, how we manage this. And, the, and you're right, transparency and uh, equity and fairness are different things. But when we are transparent, um, I think it starts to build the trust with the employees because, you know, we're demonstrating we have nothing to hide. Yeah. And um, also when we are transparent, you know, how we manage things can start to be challenged. And we are a lot more likely to be fair and, and equitable if we are transparent than if we're not transparent. And I suppose you can be, tr you can be transparent about a process of... Um reward and uh, how you do pay rises and, and career progression without having to publish salaries necessarily um, as well. So there's lots of different areas there. 
In terms of the people that you work with, do you see that certain approach, I mean, obviously public sector, they have bands, don't they? So it is transparent, you know, band they are, you know, with people are going to earn within a certain um, area of that band. Do you see that certain um, pay approaches are more appropriate for different organisations or is it fashionable to do things a certain way? What do you see um, out there? Yeah, so I think... I I think, like you said, there are different approaches that are prevalent in different industries. In the public sector, it is very much, you know, the roles are a lot more defined and uh, the responsibilities are defined as well. And you tend to see narrower bands and narrower pay ranges because uh, the roles are very specific. But if you think about something like financial services, they want to have a lot of flexibility because roles could be doing different tasks, even if though they sit at the same at a level or band within the organization. And there you tend to see um, a lot more um, broader ranges because it allows them with flexibility to be able to manage pay, to be able to pay higher salaries if there's a, a candidate that they really want to recruit or retain. So I think it's thinking about different things like the balance between external competitiveness and internal equity is one thing. So whichever sector they're in, these are some of the things organizations need to think about. So if you want complete internal equity and you forget about external competitiveness, then you would have very narrow ranges. If you want to be really externally competitive and have less focus on internal equity, then um, you might have broader ranges and you might have other checks in place um, in your organization to make sure there is internal equity while allowing you that flexibility. So it's, it's about balancing lots of different things. So I can see that competitiveness is, you know, if you're in a very competitive market, then um, you, they want to have more flexibility to attract and retain um, talent there. Um, I guess that links into your strategies then. So, so if you have an HR strategy, just tying back to think where we talked about business strategy, which is about um, recruitment and retention of talent, then you might have a specific pay, salary, uh, pay approach um, to it, I guess. Would that be the case? What other kind of whys do people, or what other strategies might people have with regard to reward? So I, I, I think the reward strategy really leads to link into your business strategy. Mm -hmm. So for example, what, what the first step that we do with all, pretty much all of our clients is, is really thinking about what are your reward principles? And the reward principles are in a way something that you can use to audit how we manage pain reward. So if you're one of your principles is around being transparent, then when, when we come up with a new pay process and we say, okay, let's see, is this transparent? If it's not, then it's not aligned to our principles. So let's rethink how this is done. Um, so we do this with all of our principles and the way to come up with those reward principles is to think about where are we now as an organization and how do we manage so how do we manage governance? Who's making pay decisions? Is it line managers? Is it HR? What are we communicating to employees uh, around pay? Are we communicating as much as we can or are we only just telling them what their monthly pay is? And then let's think about our business strategy. So what do we want to do in three to five years? And given this is our business strategy, how would we want to manage this in the next five years if we were to get to where we want to be? And by thinking about how do we want to manage governance in the future, communication, um, differentiation, 
for performance, all of these things, then we start to think about our principles and our reward strategy. So I think it's very much linked to our business strategy and where we want to be. Which makes total sense. I mean, in, in all of these things, everything in HR, really, we should be aligned to business strategy, shouldn't we, um, in, in terms of this. So with I'm thinking about often you have people who are introducing things like performance related pay. Um, I, I think that's a really that's one that we come across quite often on question. People ask questions about. And um, I mean, I guess there's pros and cons to it. What, what would you say when you're working with people who maybe they want to introduce performance related pay? Would you say it suits a certain strategy or reward or are there any best practices or when would you say don't do it at all costs? Yeah, so I think pay for performance is a really complicated issue. So it's, it's, you know, it's the concept that we pay people more, pay people based on their contribution. So if somebody's contributing more or performing well, then we uh, give them a higher reward. And there's been a lot of discussion around this and whether this really works or not. Um, so I think what we could do is we can split this up into base salary and variable pay or bonus separately. So if we think about base salary, you know, 20, 25 years ago, most of the large organizations used to have a pay for performance approach. So they would look at performance primarily in the form of uh, performance ratings. So the higher performance rating or outstanding, you would get a higher pay increase. And that's how most of organizations operated. And then we had the 2008 financial crash and Initially, organizations had no budget, and then they had budgets of one or one and a half percent. And they st started to realize there wasn't much differentiation that they could have between the, their outstanding performance getting three percent or average one, one and a half. So they gradually started to move away from pay for performance when it comes to base salary. Oh, so that was that not it wasn't it didn't work. It's the fact that the amount that you were able to give people was negligible. So it wasn't really an incentive. I think that that was uh, the driver for a lot of organization that, you know, if there is no meaningful differentiation, if, if somebody's waiting 12 months of, you know, outstanding performance, and in the end, they're only getting given an extra couple of 100 pounds because of that exceptional performance. So they, they, there was a shift of pay for performance more towards variable pay rather than base salary. So a higher differentiation of higher performance when it comes to bonus incentives. Um, I think a lot of organizations are still struggling with how do we manage uh, pay progression and whether it should be linked to performance or whether it should be linked to skills. Um, in some sectors, you know, it was it was still linked to length of service, for example, which, yeah. you know, I don't think is is a great way to manage this because, yeah, you know, it's, it also brings in things like age discrimination. So. I remember um, that because the company, I, my first company I worked for, Pfizer, we had um, in increments when we first joined and they <clears> introduced <throat> PRP or pay, uh, performance related pay while we were there. And I think it might have been just on bonus, I think. But I just remember one of my friends saying, yeah, what's the point of this? The only way you can get a pay rise is by getting older. You know, and it is a yeah. bit kind of, it's not really <laughs> a motivator, is it? For, the, for those who are highly, who are highly ambitious. Exactly, yeah. And so then if we think about uh, variable pay, and bonus. So that is predominantly based on performance. So um, the higher the performance, the higher the incentive of the bonus. In some cases, it's the same uh, for everyone, but that's more of a profit share than a bonus scheme. 
Um, and then there's been a lot of discussion in recent years around whether these bonuses work in the workplace. And you know, there's been a few books published, um, such as Drive by Daniel Pink, Drive, the, the surprising thing about what motivates us. And they talk about incentives and this concept of intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And examples of people giving uh, people given tasks to do and uh, split up into two groups. So one group was just doing it uh, based on intrinsic motivation and another group was given 10 or $20 to, to do that task. And the, the group that was given the incentive was always performing worse. And there were examples of uh, sales teams that were given incentives and it wasn't driving the right behavior. So some organizations start to look at this as, you know, this is evidence that incentives don't work. Um, but I think there are a couple of issues with this. Firstly, the incentives that are used in some of these studies and books are really simplistic. So what they refer to them as if then incentives. So if you do a particular task, then you will receive an incentive. And that's not really how it works in a corporate environment. In a corporate environment, bonuses and incentives are a lot more complicated and the environment is more complicated as well. So I think there, there is a lot of truth to that research. Um, and I wasn't really surprised because, you know, yes, that, that is how it might work if we're giving basic tasks and small incentives, but we shouldn't be using those incentives in the workplace. Even when it comes to, for example, call centers or telesales roles, which a lot of organizations do use that, you know, if you make 10 calls, if you bring in three leads, you get paid in incentives, but that's not how we should look at bonus in the workplace. A bonus in the workplace should be more around aligning the purpose of the organization to the purpose of the individual. So it's, it's the concept of a purpose-driven pay for performance so that, because in the workplace, there isn't really a balance of intrinsic motivation or extrinsic motivation. We can't, you know, we're not having one or the other. People come to work and we can drive that intrinsic motivation because they feel a sense of purpose or they identify with a purpose. But at the same time, they want to be paid as well because they, you know, they've got bills to pay. They want to go on holiday. So it's about how do we combine both the intrinsic and the extrinsic motivation in the workplace. So it's about having that sense of purpose, but having the right incentives at the same time that drive and motivate people. It's actually quite simplistic then the drive thing. I thought it was quite interesting. Um, are you saying that because people saw it almost as not but say that, you know, what, what's, what takes our strategies do work, but actually, um, you're saying if it's still what you're underlying is things that we've talked about in other episodes, which is the importance of um, giving people purpose and managers aligning people and help, helping people to understand the purpose of their role and, and why it's important to perform. So you're saying that gives you the intrinsic motivation uh, um, as well. So would you say then on balance, and so that, but people want to feel that they're being fairly rewarded for the efforts that they put in. So it's, it's that kind of um, piece. In terms of um, the performance related pay type approaches do you land on in terms of when if, if people decide if they do decide they are going to apply some sort of performance related pay um and let's say they're going to do it to your inflexible your your bonuses which i think is probably more common in terms of when i work with people have you got a view as to how 
um, how it could be implemented most fairly? Yeah, so um, I think when it comes to performance related pay that instead of uh, some of these books, there's, there's actually, uh, there are a few research studies, academic studies that have been done around pay for performance in a work environment. And these studies found that actually pay for performance can have really powerful impact in the workplace if it's done properly. And if it's not done properly, it can also have a demotivating impact. So the crucial thing is um, we need to make sure it's working properly. And the other thing around this is that the perception of fairness is more important than the outcome and what people actually get paid. So, so it's really about having a fair process is the key. Exactly. Is what people want, right. So thinking back at, you know, when organizations had a one and a half percent or one percent budget and they were thinking, well, it's not really uh, much differentiation. That's not really the important part. The important part is if there is differentiation, is it fair? Because that's what people want to know is that, you know, if they are contributing more, they want to be rewarded more and it's fair. That's more important than, than the amount. So I think, you know, pay for performance can work in organizations. And before we start looking into the design of something, we should think about the perceptions of people around performance. So the, what a lot of organizations will call a performance management process is what is critical. Mm. And that needs to work properly and people need to trust in that process. And once they trust in the process, then we can start to think about designing uh, an incentive or uh, a bonus that is going to drive the right behaviors. So those two things need to work together. So they need to understand and trust the entire process and also the way it's going to be administered, because then it comes down to how managers manage them. Um, and I, I guess in terms of consistency across the organization, very much this, this is where you end up here. Do you have um, a sense, is there any other way of evaluating performance or um, distributing pay um, other than doing ratings through the performance management approach? Yeah, so I'm, I'm not a fan of ratings and in particular, um, you know, force distribution, which yeah. um, thankfully a lot of organizations have started to move away from. Um, although, you know, a lot will also look to have like a calibration process, which essentially is force distribution, but uh, a, a less strict way of doing it. I guess it depends um, whether they force you to calibrate into a normal distribution or not, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 And um, so I, I think the, you know, the best way to look at performance is by not having these annual objectives, but having objectives that are set on a more regular basis. And then having meetings that are uh, taking place on a weekly basis, because that's when managers and, and, the, uh, and the wider population will also realize uh, the performance of individuals by, you know, by sharing your objectives to the rest of the team, to other people in the organization. These are our objectives and then how they're progressing on a regular basis. I, I always like to compare it to football because I think it's, you know, it's something that a lot of us can relate to and it's, it's easy to understand. And if we think about, um, you know, players like Messi or Ronaldo, if we think about how much they get paid, and it's in, in some cases multiple times more than their, their teammates, uh, 
but their teammates don't resent Ronaldo mm-hmm. and Messi, right? They they are um, they realize the contribution that they're making, and and there are everyone else is benefiting from it because there are so many performance indicators around goals, assists, passes, pass completions, and we can see these on a weekly basis. We can see what they're contributing. And obviously we can't get the same level of uh, information and data in the work environment, but I think we can have a lot more clarity if we can look at this on a, on a more regular basis by objectives that are you know, weekly, monthly, meetings that are weekly, monthly, um, and then using that as a way to, again, be more transparent about people's performances, because then that perception of fairness is, is not really down to people's opinions, but it's based on actual data. So it's about the quality of the objectives. And uh, I think otherwise, otherwise you're being quite subjective. I would would think the managers might feel subjective and then people can, it can go the other way. So you're almost saying if people can see um, the contribution that their colleagues are are delivering, then that, that, that works. But again, what's, what's really interesting is you're reinforcing all of the good practice of actually good quality people performance management people perform better if they have short-term goals and objectives and regular feedback that's the the main key so it's not that money's driving it; it's just they perform better if they're then rewarded for that then that that's supporting your performance um they're not doing it because uh, of the reward they're doing it because that's the best way to help people focus and and deliver so in, with that then going back to incentives given that they don't really drive behavior. Are there any particular incentives that you would recognize um, or recommend? Um, well, I mean, I, I think incentives do drive behavior. And, and what we need to do is, like I was saying earlier, the if-then benefits are, are too simple. And those are, you know, even if we have them in a sales environment, we should look to get rid of them. What we need what, to so do- So you say with- commission doesn't work? No, I think commission works, but again, uh, commission in the sense of looking at longer term objectives and not saying you need to bring in three leads this week, because then that really narrows the focus because they're thinking about those three leads in the week, not thinking about, I need to help the organization achieve our you yeah, know, sales target yeah. or, or, or get new customers or make our customers happy. I mean, th- there are a lot of organizations that actually moved away from uh, commission plans for their call centers, and they based a lot of it, and in some, some cases, 100% of it on customer service scores, because there's a really strong link between customer service and your NPS uh, mm-hmm. score uh, and your revenue, because if you ha- deliver excellent customer service, you get more retention. It's a lot cheaper to retain customers than it is to get new customers. So that was a lot stronger case for having um, customer service. So I think those are some of the things that we need to look at. How do we look at the bigger picture and not narrow people's focus by thinking about leads, by thinking about, you know, that there was one uh, organization uh, we're working with that were looking at the, uh, the number of minutes people were spending on the phone, which, you know, it's, people could end up spending a lot of time with speaking to one person, but it's that that's what really shifts the focus from really looking at the big picture. Yeah. So 
I was looking you can go down a rabbit warren here, isn't it? In terms of it's important to measure the things that are making the difference as opposed to measure the things that are easy to measure. Um, I think that's you hear lots of examples of that with call centers and things about making sure that you don't actually encourage the wrong behaviors where they've gone, oh, you need to make X number of calls in a day and people start phoning their mum or speaking clock or things like that. So it is about making sure that um, that we drive the right behavior. So you actually would say that um, incentives do work. You're saying commission does work in, or other other things, but as long as people have the purpose as well, it's not about being that. Is it about you want a range of influencers? Is that what you're saying? I think it works. So we need to. So the first thing is we don't we shouldn't just focus on what people are doing. So it's a combination of what people are doing and how they're doing it and how they're doing it is, you know, the behaviors that they're demonstrating. So if as an organization, we have a set of values and we're trying to build a certain culture, we look at people, even if it's commission and what they're delivering, but at the same time, how they're delivering it. Going back to the customer service example, you know, you could have a, a salesperson that's delivering exceptional sales figures but at the same time, you know, hogging all the leads, annoying their team members. And so that's dry, driving uh, the rest of the team to, to not perform well. So it's, it's not, we shouldn't just focus on what people are doing and how they're doing it and trying to build our values as an organization into those incentive plans. So again, that's the sort of thing that I see people doing with competencies or values as part of the assessment um, or the discussion that they'd be having over the course of of, uh, the, of the year and, and really again we're, we're saying that very often that's just under appraisal time but if you can get these conversations to be happening on a more on a regular basis then you're going to encourage the right behaviors great okay so so we talked about um the importance of having a transparent process or approach to pay we talked about your five steps so understanding what you pay you know what your strategy is why you're doing it understanding what the intent of your pay strategy is in order to um to, to plan it um, and, and, and aspects there in terms of working out what your clear process is and then making sure people understand it. Uh, we've talked about the fact that it doesn't have to be the same. It's just that we need to be fair and consistent. Um, well, one thing we've talked about pros and cons of performance related pay and incentives. One other thing actually that quite often gets asked um, on our forums is things about um, if you want to actually benchmark, do you recommend how people might if, if they want to, although when they apply their salaries, they've got to work out where they are in relation to the market. If they want to be competitive. What, what's your view on salary benchmarking and any tips on that? Yeah, so when it comes to benchmarking, there are two types of data. One is the crowdsourced information, which is websites like Glassdoor or Indeed. And that's what a lot of employees have access to as well. And then on the other hand, you have the paid surveys that organizations participate in where they, um, they look at the roles within their organization, match them onto the survey. So those two are very different. And you know, I always recommend organizations to go down the paid survey route because the, the crowdsource surveys have two main issues. One is it's based on job titles. Yeah. So a finance manager in one organization could be equivalent to a senior finance manager or even a finance analyst in another. So we're not always comparing like with like. And then the second thing is that they look at advertised salaries as opposed to actual salaries. So we could advertise a role as up to 40,000, but as we know, sometimes you might end up paying a salary of 32,000 or even 45,000. So 
we don't get the right picture. The, the paid salary surveys will look at the actual salaries and also it goes through a job evaluation process. So we look at the skills. Right, so they're actually comparing like with like better. Like with like. And so that's what organizations should go through uh, for a benchmarking process. Okay. And so the first step is really to evaluate the role, to look at the skills responsibilities uh, required. This next step is to use the market data to benchmark the role. Then we have to think about, so as part of the survey, you'll get your market median, upper, lower quartile or deciles. And we need to think about as an organization, where do we want to position ourselves? So most organizations might position themselves at the market median, but there might be some that say, you know, we want to be, we have high growth plans. We want to attract the best talent. We'll be upper quartile. Yeah. So then it's thinking about where do we want to position ourselves and then decide to set the pay range. And I think this is again, where transparency comes into it because organizations that are more transparent make themselves more attractive to candidates. So if you think about an organization that is advertising a role, if you put a pay range around that role, you will get a lot more people applying. You'll get a lot more relevant people applying and high performers applying because they know uh, what to expect. And the other thing I would say is, you know, when you were talking about benchmarking, uh, I talked about the four or five steps. Uh, but what tends to happen is the first question that organizations and recruiters ask a candidate is what is your current salary mm. and I think that that's a question that we should uh, ban organizations from asking because if we go through those steps to evaluate roles benchmark them decide our positioning then the, the current salary has nothing to do with this yeah. and when we ask that question all we're doing is we are transferring inequities from one organization to mm. the next because if somebody's underpaid and they get fed up, decide to leave, to go somewhere else, we say, what is your existing salary? And just use that as a benchmark to give them a slight pay increase when they really should be getting a lot more because they were, um, they were being paid unfairly. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I, again, two large companies that I've worked for, I've, actually I've mentioned before, I won't say which is which. One of them, I remember they did a, a salary benchmarking and we all got a, an uplift because they said we weren't being paid enough, which was an, a novel um, thing. And the other one, um, we, we used to sort of say you had to leave and come back to get a proper set pay increase. So and, and the number of people who had actually left gone somewhere else and then um, come back to the organization, but they get a, a really a chunky uplift because they'd be able to demonstrate their market value elsewhere, I guess. Um, and with known quantities. So all the interesting stuff there. Thank you, Remy. This has been really interesting. If people um, are on the HR advising of, of the listeners, if they want to talk to you directly or as part of your what you do day to day, how would they get hold of you? So they can um, find me on LinkedIn, uh, Ramiz Kaleem, uh, or go to 3r-strategy.com uh, and get in touch uh, with me through through the website. Fantastic. And I will put that link in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on the HR Uprising podcast, Ramiz. Thanks a lot for, for having me. A pleasure. Thank you. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. 
It really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.